Follow Miss Laurie back there. While they're doing that, let me invite you, if you brought a Bible with you, to open up to John chapter 5, or if you got it on a device. Uh, if you've been tracking with us through the book of John, you might think we made a mistake just now because we've already taught this passage. Um, and uh, I think Kobe uh, Cathcart read that for us a couple weeks ago. Um, but our message today is the end of chapter 5, and um, these two events go hand in hand. And so we are going to, um, we're going to start there. I, uh, my preaching professor in seminary uh, taught, me that, uh, taught me that preaching uh, is a lot like being a chef. And uh, if you go to a fine restaurant, you do not want them to bring back everything that's in the kitchen and lay it on your table. No, you want the chef to go through and uh, uh, to enhance as best he can um, the ingredients in the meal and then serve it together uh, to you, just the meal. And in a similar way, um, it's how preaching has worked. You know, uh, a good preacher does the work on the backside of it and studies the, uh, the original languages and the meanings and reads the commentaries and the context of the passage and then brings forth this, you know, so to speak, this meal for us to eat. We're not going to talk about all the Greek words or the Hebrew, uh, first time they're used in Hebrew, but to bring it forth. However, today's a little bit more difficult than doing this. We'll kind of treat this like a cooking class. Um, this is, there's a lot in the passage that we're going to cover today, and we're going to walk through them almost Bible study style so that we can see exactly what's going on as we move through chapter 5, and there's a little shift that we're fixing to take uh, next week is uh, Jason's going to be talking about Jesus feeding the 5,000, and uh, we're going to get into the I am statements of Jesus coming forward that's going to lead us right through, um, right through Easter. So you get from the text that Jesus heals this invalid um, by the pool of Bethesda, Bethsaida, and, and, and uh, he had been there for 38 years. He does this incredible thing. Jesus heals the man. The religious leaders get immediately mad at the man because he's carrying his mat, again, on the Sabbath. Now, we don't have those strict rules, uh, not near as bad as they did, but it was one of the rules that God had handed down to the Hebrew people that they could not work on the Sabbath. And so then the question begs us, what does working actually mean on the Sabbath and so this group of people called the Pharisees they took this rule and they added all these rules to it well this is what is work and this is what is not work and this is how many steps you could take on a Sabbath and not take on a Sabbath and this is what constitutes real work well two of those things that you could not do on a Sabbath that the Pharisees had implemented to describe what working was was you could not heal someone on a Sabbath I don't know how many people had the power of healing back then, but they thought it was necessary enough that that made the list. Can't heal on a Sabbath, and you can't carry your bed on a Sabbath. And both of these are happening in this text. And so these religious leaders are furious with the man first. Then the man finds out it's Jesus. He said, hey, what me? Is this guy? He's the one who told me. And if you've just been healed of a disease that you've had for 38 years, being an invalid... Whatever the guy who healed you told you to do, you're probably going to do. So Jesus says, take up your mat. He does it. He walks out. The religious leaders are very upset. And Jesus, with such grace in this passage, is going to walk with these religious leaders and provide multiple proofs and multiple opportunities and multiple invitations for them 
to see Jesus. And they missed it over and over and over again. Will you pray with me quickly before we dive into the actual text? Pray that God would speak to your heart. Holy God, our Father, Lord, I pray over the preaching of your word that it would go forth and not return void, that it would provide comfort and conviction and encouragement and even healing as needed. It would renew our minds even today. Jesus, would you help us see the Father clearly? Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the face of Jesus so that we could see him and follow him? It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Jesus says something there at the end of 16, jump in with me. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things, these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Though he rested from creation, God the Father never stopped actually working. He never stopped preserving and governing that which we had created. And in this respect, God cannot ultimately keep a Sabbath, for nothing, Colossians tells us, nothing can continue to exist without his active working, without him holding all things together by the word of his power. And Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working. I love that song, that line in the song we sing uh, sometimes, the Waymaker. Even when I don't feel that you're working, you never stop, you never stop working. Straight from scripture, from the words of Jesus, I am working. And there are situations in our life where we do not see the active hand of God. And if we're not careful, we are tempted to give in to despair, to think that God has forgotten us. But the psalmist reminds us that God does not sleep or nor does he slumber. His right hand is not shortened. He is ready to act on our behalf. God's working. Verse 18, and this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now you see how John the author here is painting the picture of the uh, volatility between Jesus and the religious leaders of the establishment. Now we make these Pharisees out to be the bad dudes of the Bible, and, and they, they are, in a sense, because they were so close to Jesus, yet they missed Jesus. And because they were spiritual leaders and they were leading people away from Jesus. But these guys, these Pharisees, were, I mean, I can't think of anything in today's context that would even parallel or compare their uh, religious dedication to. Most of them had memorized the entire Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They had memorized it. Not a little bit of it, and not just the books of them. They had memorized the actual thing. And they knew them well enough that they would do this uh, teaching in the Jewish synagogue where they would quote them backwards sometimes. And then they would have these question games where they would connect the dots of when that first appeared and what that actually meant and what the commentary was on that. And this is how they did it. They knew God's word. Man, they knew it. 
They knew the first five books. They knew most of the Psalms that we have today because they were part of their ritual and their singing. They certainly knew the history. They knew uh, the, the Proverbs and the wisdom. They knew the word of God. And yet these are the people that you, the only people you find Jesus yelling at in scripture are these people. But he's not to that place to where he's raising his voice yet. He's not calling them names like you bunch of snakes yet. He's reasoning with them in the midst of this. You know, John chapter 1 said that Jesus would come and he was going to be full of truth and full of grace. And he is both of these right here because you could see it in his temperament. And I'm so glad that Jesus is awesome and I'm not because I would not have had this much patience. Listen here, you morons. Why do you not get this? The Jews were seeking to kill him all the more. So see, 16, they're persecuting. 18, now they're trying to kill him. Because he was saying that God was his own father, making himself equal with God. Do you see that? This is the great argument that C.S. Lewis made to all who referred to Jesus as a prophet, this great prophet or this great teacher. He would say that that position in mere Christianity is not available. There's his actual quote. I don't have this on the screen. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying a really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we can't say, C.S. Lewis says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man and is, was, is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being his great human teacher. And this is what you see here. Over and over in this passage, Jesus says, I and the Father, we're one. I only do what the Father has sent me to do. He is proving his deity and connection to the Trinity. Think about the claims that Jesus is making here. If you met a man in Starbucks pre-COVID when you can actually walk in Starbucks and talk to people. And they come up and said, hey, listen, I just want you to know that I'm the savior of the world. Um, Talk to God the Father this morning. Yes, I'm the one that created all things you would think he's a crazy man. The first several years of our church, we didn't have an office, so I office out of Starbucks, and this one crazy man came in there, and he uh, motioned to me close, and I came up uh, standing right there where you pick up the drinks, and he said, hey, listen, I just want you to know that your wife is going to be attacked, and she's going to die a violent death tonight. And he spouted off several other weird things, and I rebuked him in the name of Jesus as a crazy person. And I did not believe him. One second. Didn't even tell Ashley about it. Didn't even put the gun under the pillow that night. I was not even concerned. He was a crazy man. But this, imagine Jesus telling you this. I and the Father are one. I do only the things that the Father is telling me to do. The Father is working until now and I am working. But Jesus in his grace is going to continue. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, anytime Jesus says that, we should circle it. That's just like, hey, you, I've been saying some really true things, but I want you to listen closely. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. 
Now this creates this great inner turmoil for these Pharisees, these religious people who had dedicated their life in knowing and following and learning who Yahweh God was. They had great respect for the creator God. They saw themselves as part of his family and in the lineage of his story. The sons of Abraham who God promised ultimate redemption and restoration. But they missed Jesus. So Jesus is trying with grace to connect the dots for them. Jesus lived this life of grace and truth. And he's pressing in the truth a little bit more and more now for the Pharisees. Verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him. Greater works than what? Than healing the man um, at the pool. Greater works than these he's going to do. So that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. That all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And Jesus begins talking about everlasting life the thing that every Jew wanted olam haba is what they wanted they wanted everlasting life in the future and even to be present with it uh, with them even at this moment this is what they were seeking after and Jesus says hey listen here's the way that you really achieve everlasting eternal overflowing life it's to believe in me and the one who sent me You can see their blood boiling just a little bit. He's explaining to these astonished religious leaders that those who heard his word and accepted his word would have everlasting eternal life. That they would have life connected with eternity and they would have it now. Just a few chapters ago in John 3.16, Jesus stated that belief in him, meaning the sense of trusting in or relying on or clinging to, was the path to everlasting life. And here Jesus is saying that hearing his word and believing in the Father who had sent him for this very purpose is the path to everlasting life. Because the Father and the Son are so united in their work, each is true of the other. True belief in the Father is belief in the Son. And true belief in the Son is belief in the Father. And this is what Jesus is saying. And they do not want to hear this. 25. Another truly, truly. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I 
some pretty incredible things in this passage, and we do not have time to chase all these down. But I encourage you, just a study this week, you might want to read some commentary on this. And we would probably wait deeper in this in a Bible study class, but this passage is important because it helps us understand the deity of Christ and his relationship to the Father. These words of Jesus contradict several later errors or heresies, as we would call it, about the nature and deity of the Son of God. One is sometimes called uh, the Jesus-only doctrine, also called modalism. And groups still today believe in this, that there weren't three persons and one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but they were all working in different modes at different times. So it was like a transformer God, transformer God, and then he wants to come be with us, peasy little people, and he becomes Jesus God And then when he leaves and floats back up to heaven off the Mount of Ascension, he becomes the Holy Spirit God. But that is certainly not what God teaches. And you can certainly see in evidence one specific case, the baptism of Jesus, where you see all three participating. Jesus being baptized, God the Father speaking over his son, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, and the Holy Spirit like of present in that scene as well. Another heresy is this error that Jesus was not God at all, also known as Arianism. It's what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe today. They think that Jesus and the Spirit were both creations of God and not equal to the Father. And we could talk more about the finer points of this, but the whole, the whole reason I even bring this up is because it's good to know the Word of God. And when you know the Word of God... It provides good boundaries so you don't fall in error in thinking, that you don't fall in heresy itself. This is why the word of God is great. I had a group of Jehovah's Witnesses that were coming by my house pretty frequently. And you know this about me. I'm as quirky in real life as I am up here, okay? You know this. And, and I, I, you know, these guys kept coming, and I was like, Ashley, go talk to those guys. And finally she looked at me like, dude, you're the pastor. You're the man of this house. So I got there, and we talked a little bit, and we invited them in the front room, and we got out the Greek New Testament, and they didn't stay long. Because the word of God speaks for itself, And it protects you from error. This is why we got to know the word. And we've got to interpret the word with the word. Let's keep going. Verse 30. The title in my uh, Bible that I'm using says that the the heading, which is not inspired by God, but helps us kind of organize the the thoughts. It says, witnesses to Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. He's going to lay out several witnesses to his deity, to his claim to be the son of God. He says in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Thank God for that. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony will not be true. Now the Pharisees were fixing to make this point, but Jesus made it for them. Because way back in Deuteronomy, there was this law that you had to have at least two witnesses to verify something was true. 
And so Jesus is saying, listen, you're not going to take my own word for it. And he's going to lay for several witnesses that point to what he's saying is to be true. This fivefold defense of who he's claiming to be. First, John the Baptist, verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, if you've been with us from the beginning, you go back to John 1. What's the first thing that John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus walking near uh, the place where he's baptizing? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the testimony. Verse 33, you sent, you, you sent to John, and he has come and borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Everybody loved John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist was saying, very harshly, that Jesus the Messiah was about to be here. And he was, he was the messenger that everybody loved, right? He was the crazy guy wearing the, you know, camel hair and eating the bugs. And imagine him riding on a Harley and just being one just heck of a dude. Just out there baptizing people and preaching fire and brimstone. And he said, you loved him for a little bit until he says, look, there's the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But the people didn't want a Messiah that took away the sins of the world. They wanted a Messiah who would overthrow Rome. Their perceived problem was not the greatest problem. And Jesus came and he was the Messiah they really needed, but he was not the one that they wanted. So first, remember John the Baptist. Next, the miraculous works of myself. No average person can do these kind of things. Verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that it's truly the Father that has sent me. Now the majority of the miraculous works of Jesus were simple acts of compassion and mercy. Done for the simple and needy. And in this, these works bear witness to the heart of God. Again, this is not who the Pharisees wanted. Jesus, use your miraculous works to set Pilate on fire. Let's burn a Roman legion to the ground. Let's burn them to a crisp. The disciples would later say, hey God, why don't you fry all of Samaria? Just come the lightning, just... Zap them. And they miss the heart of God because what does Jesus do with his miraculous work? He served the lost and the least. He goes and finds an invalid who's been that way for 38 years. And he heals them. The Jews looked for a miraculous Messiah, but they did not look for the one who would express this power in such simple acts of compassion and mercy. They looked for one who would use his miraculous power to overthrow Rome's power. 
and bring political deliverance to Israel. You remember that place? Maybe you learned about this as a kid. I, I grew up in church, and so I learned most of the Old Testament on flannel graph, okay? You know what that is? Anybody that's like the, you know, the little, the little blue-looking board that had the people that stuck to them? I loved it. I thought it was, the most, it was the most ingenious thing. Now, I also grew up in a house without a TV, so flannel graph was the thing, man. It was like, whoa. The place in Judges 15 where Samson takes the jaw of a donkey and he kills a thousand Philistines. Remember listening to that as a little kid thinking, man, that is amazing. I mean, this is like, uh, this is like godly Rambo or some kind of thing, right? Takes a jawbone. This is what they wanted Jesus to do. They wanted Jesus to be the greater Samson who would take a fishing hook and kill 10,000 people, right? The ultimate, right, MacGyver. That's what they wanted Jesus to be, but that's not what he used his supernatural power to do. No, he used it to heal the lame and the blind, those that had lifelong disease, the lepers. The miraculous works of Jesus, the words of John the Baptist. Finally, here's another third witness. Then the Father himself in verse 37. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen. Now they they would immediately connect this back to the God that dealt with Moses. When Moses said, God, show me more of your glory. He said, you couldn't even handle my glory. I'll let you see after I pass by. Basically, I'll let you see where I once was is basically the, is, is what he's saying. And what Jesus is doing is he is pointing them back really to two things. First, the prophecy from the Old Testament. There are at least 414 direct messianic prophecies about the coming Jesus. And these things, these Pharisees would have been well aware of these prophecies because they were always looking for the Messiah And at least 50 of them, Jesus has already fulfilled. Born in Bethlehem, of a virgin, preceded by a forerunner like Elijah, that'd be John the Baptist, called out of Egypt from the house of David, be called a Nazarene, would have a ministry of miraculous work in redemptive deeds. It wasn't enough, though. Even in the baptism of Jesus, God audibly speaking, He's pointing to the Old Testament prophecy. It's all been leading up to me. And then he gives the defense, you've got to skip down to verse 45, of Moses himself. Their entire way of life was built on the Mosaic law. He maybe was their most loved ancestor. Verse 45, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe even his writings, how will you believe my words? At least 10 times in the first five books of the Torah, Moses writes about the one who is to come, the great redeemer, the promised seed. 
the great deliverer, the greater one raised on the pole that brought healing. So many of these stories, right, are foreshadowing of the Messiah who is to come. Jesus is saying, these were all pointing to me. Wouldn't you love to have been on that road to Emmaus with those disciples after the resurrection as Jesus walked through these very things and connected the dots for them, this all pointing to me, all pointing to me. But these men didn't care. And I'm going to close by focusing on maybe the two most applicable points made in this passage for us today. He really makes two points. If we could settle these truths in our own heart, how much joy and satisfaction and purpose we would live in today. Verse 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Man, what an indictment. If we're not careful, we become accidental Pharisees. Accidental Pharisees. These devout men did not intend to set themselves up against the God of the universe. And they knew so much. But ultimately, knowledge alone just puffs up. Isn't that what Paul says? The two ways that we know if we're accidental Pharisees. One, you have the word of God in your head, but not the love of God in your heart. The word of God in your head, but not the love of God in your heart. This is what Jesus specifically said to them. You search the scriptures. You know the word. But you don't have the love of God within you. They had the word of God in their heads, no love of God in their hearts. The Pharisees were guilty because they just missed Jesus. They read scripture. Not to search for God, but to find arguments to support their own positions. You ever done that? They did not really love God. They loved their own ideas about God. They loved the image of God they had conjured up in their own mind. That this would be the God. And this is how he would come. And they confused. I don't like what God doesn't like. They confused. I love what God loves. And those aren't always the same things, friends. This is why we've got to read the word of God with ultimate authority over us. Not to find the passages out of context that excuse the behavior that we want. Isn't this the world that we live in today? Listen, you can find some theological scholar out there who will say, hey man, I've read the Greek and you're free to do whatever you want to do. Let me promise you, you can probably even find a church that will preach that. 
Go find a church that will preach whatever you, you, you think is right. That is so dangerous. Do you want to put the eternity of your soul in the hands of someone who's that wishy-washy, namely yourself? What does Keller say? Listen, if the God of the Bible, if the Bible itself doesn't argue back against you, you're probably just worshiping yourself, man. The word of God confronts and convicts and redirects and realigns the posture of our heart and the thinking of our minds and the actions of our life. And if it doesn't do that to you, then you're not really reading it. You're looking for the places to make you feel better about you. This was true for them and it's true for us today. I remember when God was calling me to ministry. You've seen how the word of God is living and active like this, right? That, man, he just speaks to you. And you don't want to listen. I remember being in a quiet time one time when I was 16. And me and my buddy, we were 16. And we wanted to get serious about following God. And so we would call every morning, each other every morning at uh, 6 o'clock. And we would be like, hey, man, get in the word before I see you at school today. And so we were reading God's word together. And I remember God speaking so clearly to me. Every passage I turned to, I could just hear the voice of God saying, Luke, I'm calling you to something. I want you to say yes to me. Isn't it weird how you read the same passages over and over and you just miss that part and it would just be like God speaking to me. And I remember verbally saying, God, would you just shut up so that I can finish my quiet time and get to school? He should have zapped me dead right then, right? Friends, if you're not careful, that's what you do. God, if you'll just let me get through my thing because I'm going to meet my DG and I want to tell him I read but you're not actively listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. You're an accidental Pharisee looking for the parts of Scripture that support your own ideas. 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training and righteousness. This is what the word of God is good for in our own hearts. And friends, how arrogant are we when we go, a, we go a week without even opening up God's word? It's, it's the sin that they made in the garden. You remember the garden? Adam and Eve started this ministry that God gave them. The, the enemy appears in the form of a serpent. And he begins to say, did God really say And at that moment, they decided that their understanding of how the whole world works was greater than the one who created everything and spoke it and told them what to do. And friends, let's be real. We do this all the time with God's word. God, I know you said that about sexuality, but you know, I think you just weren't enlightened enough. I know you opened up your mouth and spoke out everything that's ever been created. But you know what? Me and my 23 years, me and my 35 years, me and my blogs and my news, my Twitter feed, I know so much more about you. I know so much more about life. How arrogant of us. And to think that we could go days or weeks or months 
without opening the word, what does James say? The word is like a mirror. And it reflects back to us what we really are. Teenagers, you want to know how the world works? Get in the word. You want to know what God says about relationships or work or wives or husbands or sex? You want to know about any of that? Whole, a whole book of the Bible is, is, is given over just to sex. Isn't this incredible that what God does and he says, listen, I want you to walk in this in a healthy way. There's a way that I've made this. There's some boundaries I've put in place for your own safety. What a gift his word is to us. And yet we, like the Pharisees, ignore it or use it to support whatever we want to believe. Just as God's word is teaching us, our culture is teaching us as well about relationships and sex and families. And on and on we go. And one of them, the word of God or the culture we're in, is conforming us unto its likeness. We let seeds of truth be planted in our heart and our mind. They lead to spiritual growth and spiritual fruit and a life of joy and satisfaction. Or we let seeds of corruption, as Galatians calls it, be planted in our mind and in our hearts, the world's way, and it leads to a wasted life and chasing things that don't matter in the end of disappointment and destruction and dissatisfaction. And that's the choice we make every day. Yet many of us, if we're not careful, we become accidental Pharisees because of how we handle the word of God. And two, the second point, they live for the glory of man and not the glory of God. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. I love that that's just a statement that he makes. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you're going to receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I'm going to accuse you to the Father. And then he moves into the statement we've already read about Moses. They live, the second way you know you're an accidental Pharisee, you live for the glory of man instead of the glory of God. What other people think about you means more to you than what God has said and declared about you. Pleasing them means more to you than living a life that pleases God. They cared so deeply about what their buddies thought of them, way more than they did the truth. They lived for the glory of man. Glory, this Hebrew word kavod, it means weightiness or worthness. It's what would adjust scales sometimes, the measurement of the weight of how scales would be adjusted. It was, it was the kavod, and this is what God says. I've got all the weightiness of the whole world. All the worthness, and I'm giving it to you as a son, a daughter of the Most High. And yet you don't even want that. You'd rather exchange all of that for the pocket lint that this world would offer you. Again, back to Genesis 3. When they sinned, it led to an ache for the lost glory, the lost intimacy they had with God. 
The natural trajectory of humanity is to reconstruct a substitute image of that glory, of recapturing this lost glory and securing the approval of other people as a substitute for the approval of God. They lived for the glory of man rather than the glory of God. They had the word of God in their head, but not the love of God in their heart. Now listen, friends, I love you. As one of your pastors, I love you. Hear this warning from Jesus today. Our world constantly tells us that everything you need for peace and joy and satisfaction is in the next thing you buy or the next friend you get or the next season of life. If you just bought this or had this, then you would have that, that ache of lost glory would be satisfied by this next new thing. And it never does it. And Jesus says here, you want real eternal life? Believe in me and in the one who sent me. Let's pray together. Lord, as we're still just a moment before a holy and just God, would you speak to our hearts? There's a lot of people in this room that's just been playing religious games, and today's the day that that should end. A lot of us have been caught up in this pharisaical attitude where we where we know parts of what your word says. Your word's in our head, but your, the, your love is not being manifest in our hearts. And so we immediately become the referees and we want to just blow the whistle at everybody who's not doing it the way that we want it to be done instead of pouring out your love on them. While we were yet sinners, Christ, you still died for us. What a glorious thought. Lord, some of us are trapped in this fear of man, this glory hunger, chasing after approval from other people or other things, other groups. It's never going to satisfy you. God just as you spoke over Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and at the baptism this is my son whom I love this is what you're saying over us Luke you're my son whom I love Jennifer you're my daughter who I love Lord may that bolster our real identity as sons and daughters of the King of the Most High. Heirs to all of heaven. The riches of which we cannot even comprehend. But are waiting for us on the other side of our yes to Jesus. Lord, may we chase after these in this room covenant church Lord may we chase after the things that matter may we sow into our lives the things that matter may we gospel each other 
towards a life of real living, of investing in the things that really matter, of, yes, knowing you through your word, but not so we could beat others with truth clubs, but that we would, but that your love would come forth through our hearts. Lord, I pray that the watching world would say of those in this room that which the world said of your early disciples, they could tell that they had been with Jesus. As we prepare to take the cup of communion, remind us of our identity in you. If there's those that need to take a step of faith today, Holy Spirit, would you prompt them even now? Sins to confess. Things to mourn and weep over. Places that need realigned, corrected. Those that are just so tired and weary that need encouragement and comfort. Lord, only you can bring those. Do what you need to in our own hearts, our own lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.